Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, it's such a privilege and joy for me to be able to worship together with the Bridge Church family. Your pastor is a dear friend to me, someone who I admire and respect, as well as Pastor Rasul and just what your, your church body uh, communicates to me and to the rest of the city. I'm so grateful. I, I'm going to dive right into scripture because the passage that I was assigned is a heavy passage. There's a lot of meat in it. We're going to be reading from John chapter 8, verse 48 to 59, and it says this, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Would you join me in praying? Lord Jesus, as we stand before your word, we pray you would speak to us. Cause your word to come alive to us. Holy Spirit, would you glorify the Son of God. Reveal him in a fresh and living way to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've heard it said that the shortest distance between two people is a story. The telling of story, the telling of your story, the hearing of someone else's story has a unique power to make friends out of previously unknown acquaintances, to actually make friends out of enemies. But I would add to that and say that it's not just the telling of story, but in particular, when there's something in your story that resonates with mine. When I realize that you are someone who could understand my experience and vice versa, that has a powerful connection between two people. And why I begin there is because there's something very surreal for us as followers of Jesus to be reading his story, to be reading the pages of his life, when unlike other historical figures, we can talk to him right now. It's important for you, to, for you and I to remember that when we open the Bible, we are opening the oldest book whose author is still alive. 
that when we read the story of his life, we can pause and talk to him and hear from him and experience his presence. And as I was assigned this passage, I was amazed at yet another instance at how relevant his life is, though so long ago, to our present experience. Because as we read in this text, Jesus is experiencing something that is far too common for us in our day and age, and recent events have brought to the national consciousness in a way that is undeniable, because Jesus in this text is experiencing racism. We see that in this text, the Jews are arguing him and they lash out with a slur at him. They, they call him a Samaritan. Now you need to know Jesus wasn't from Samaria. He was born in Nazareth. And so when they say that he was from Samaria, and on top of that they say he had a demon, this was in that culture the most negative form of racial slur you could imagine. They're hurling this at Jesus. And now, if you've experienced racism right now, you've probably never felt closer to Jesus than you do right now. Because you see him experiencing something that's all too familiar and painful. To have your intentions and your character vilified before you're even given the opportunity to be known. For bias to be extended to you in ways that is unwarranted and unjust. And what strikes me here is that not only have you experienced racism do you feel this undeniable connection with Jesus, but if you're a person, and there may be some that are watching this, that you are in denial of racism that you believe it doesn't exist. Can I tell you that if the Son of God, as perfect as he was, could experience it, it's time for you and I to no longer deny it. It's a reality then, it's a reality now. And at this moment, Jesus is experiencing something that's due to a mistaken identity. They didn't know who he really was. And so they were coming at him in this really vile manner. And what we find out as Jesus responds to them is something absolutely transformative. Jesus responds to them saying that he was a Samaritan, which at that time the Samaritan people were held in such low regard. They were considered mixed breeds, impure. They, they had no respect among the people of that time. And to say that you had a demon was one of the worst forms of religious kind of stereotype you could ever have leveled against you. And to this, Jesus responds and says this in verse 49. I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I wanna park there for a moment and talk about dishonor. Because Jesus explains what was at the root of their attack toward him, and he explains it through the lens of dishonor. You see, Jesus is trying to inform us that the treatment he was, being, he was receiving from these people was not due to truth or facts. They had a predetermined choice that they were gonna dishonor him, no matter what. And Jesus responds and says, what's driving you in essence to treat me this way, to speak to me, what's, what's tainting your lens as you see me is that you have predetermined to dishonor me. But what drove this choice to dishonor him is absolutely stunning of a revelation. Verse 50, Jesus says this, 
I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. What Jesus does at that moment, when he reveals his heart, when he reveals the fact that he was not seeking his own glory, he was simultaneously exposing their heart, that their heart was seeking their own glory rather than God's. And because they were in pursuit of their own glory, they were gonna predetermine their choice to dishonor him no matter what. See, right now, under the, the rubric of mistaken identity, it's important to understand that when you and I seek our own glory, it will be impossible for us to accurately see Jesus. That we won't be able to see him as he truly is. And what, what stuns me about this moment is that as much as we would like to create some kind of cognitive distance between the people then and now and say that now we would, uh, would be better than them, we would accurately see Jesus, how could they be so blind? The truth is that in our culture, we continue to mistake Jesus for who he is not. In our culture, in my opinion, one of the biggest mistakes in identity and the way we see Jesus and relate to him is that in our culture, even amongst followers of Jesus, we have reduced Jesus to a consultant rather than seeing him as Lord. That when we, we relate to him, we come to Jesus seeking his advice, his opinion, but ultimately holding the keys of power rather than coming to him as he truly is, as Lord. You know, as a pastor, I experienced this all the time, on many occasions when people will come and seek pastoral advice. Now, the air quotes are intentional because there are some that are sincerely seeking pastoral advice and they're open, they're humble, they actually wanna hear, they wanna be guided through it. But so often, the pastoral advice they're seeking is just for me to confirm their predetermined choice. You were gonna make that decision no matter what. You, you were going to move to that city and go into that relationship and you were going to cut that person off and you were going to make those decisions no matter what was said. And so you really weren't seeking counsel. You were just seeking confirmation for the choices you already made. I find that often we come to Jesus in the same way. We don't come with open hands saying, what would you have me to do, Lord? We come tight-fisted and say, bless what I've already chosen. And when we do that, we don't see him as he is. And so we can't relate to him as he truly determines for us to relate to him. He is Lord. He's not our consultant. See, verse 51, Jesus says something that's so scathing. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Notice Jesus didn't say, whoever considers my word, whoever ponders it, whoever tweets it. He didn't say, whoever thinks it's a good idea but doesn't apply it. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. A consultant, you could choose to obey what they say or not, but a Lord, the only choice is to bow and to revere. This is his identity. And yet, like them, we continue to resist. Yeah. I want to talk about the heart of resistance. 
Why do we resist Jesus? Why did they resist him then? Why do we resist him now? Because I think in this moment, Jesus is touching on and exposing the heart of resistance. See, what I've discovered over the years that people resist Jesus not because he's supernatural and we live in an anti-supernatural biased world. Because actually, I know some of the most anti-Jesus people that are quite supernatural in their thinking. They're hanging crystals from their necks. They're, they believe in all sorts of things that have no root in, natural world, in the natural world. And so they're more supernatural than some Christians I know. But yet they resist Jesus. And it's not the lack of beauty because in Jesus we find beauty that you can't find anywhere else. It's not like something else out there is more stunning and captivating than Jesus. And so we resist him because these other things are more beautiful. Name something that's more brilliant and beautiful than Jesus. There's nothing. Yet we resist. And it's not a lack of understanding either. Because the Pharisees were religious scholars who studied God's word tirelessly, yet they still didn't see him. It brings me back to an experience I had in college in this Africana studies class that I was taking. The professor was absolutely one of my favorite professors throughout my college experience. His name was Professor Cunningham in Brooklyn College. And now this man was absolutely brilliant. And he had an incredible journey. He went to Tuskegee University, had a full scholarship from Tuskegee to Harvard, and then from Harvard to Yale where he got his PhD. Man was, the way he would unfold literature, I didn't want the class to end. We struck up a, a really great relationship and we would talk often after class, I'd meet up with him and he would call me the preacher because I was outspoken about my faith. And we would talk about Jesus constantly and I'll never forget this one conversation where he said, Christian, I'm going to have to stop you right now. I said, what did I say? He said, here's why I'm going to have to stop you. Because the more you talk, the more you make me conscious of the God-sized hole in my heart. And the more I realize nothing is going to truly fill it. So that to me, I was like, then why don't you let God fill it? And his answer was, not ready to stop living the life that I'm living. More often than not, we resist Jesus because ultimately to fully surrender to him as Lord, to not have a mistaken identity, but to see him as he truly is, means that you and I have to stop seeking our own glory and have to redirect our lives to seek his glory and his glory alone. You see, because if we're obsessed with our own glory, Life begins to crumble at that point. I don't know about you, but I am less likely to ask for forgiveness if I'm obsessed with my glory and my reputation. I'm less likely to persevere in a difficult relationship if I'm just consumed with the glory of my comfort and my ease. We're less likely to obey God in all sorts of areas when our focus is our own glory. But when, so, when something grips you, when, something, when you find something so utterly beautiful and captivating and gripping, you can't help but go in that direction no matter what. I see this most vividly in my five-year-old. My five-year-old Michael, he is the most hyper-energetic human being I've ever met in my life. We have four kids. He's kid number three. Pray for us. 
but Michael is obsessed with arts and crafts. He's gotten into his head that any box that comes into our house is part of his canvas. We can't throw boxes out in front of him. The kid will flip out. That's mine. That's my art. That's my craft. So much so that his mother and I, we sneak and throw boxes in the middle of the night when he's sleeping just so that he doesn't notice and he wakes up and he wonders where they went and we try to just sweep the conversation along. The kid is obsessed with creating and and drawing and sculpting and all these things. I can get the boy to obey me if art is on the line. It's an amazing thing. If I threaten to take away his ability to create, I will get the most perfectly obedient child you've ever seen in your life. Why? Because his obedience flows in the direction of what he glories in. What he values most is what he will obey and go to any length And what Jesus exposes in these religious leaders is that the reason why they were never going to obey Jesus is because they were never committed to seek his glory. But when we are committed to seek God's glory, obedience flows because obedience flows in the direction of glory. Whatever you and I esteem greatly, whatever grips our hearts, that is what we will glorify. So Jesus as he's responding to these religious leaders, he brings us to a question that I hope you're pondering and I want to kind of bring to light. If our hearts resist Jesus, like these people, if often our hearts are committed to our own pursuit of our own glory and that mars our ability to see Jesus as he rightly is, then the question you should be asking and I should be asking is, how do we actually obey? How can we reverse that, change that? and actually go toward Jesus in obedience, to not see Jesus as a consultant, but to see him as Lord and to obey him. And to that, I found a very interesting answer as I've been studying the subject of trauma. I've been immersing myself in that subject, reading everything I possibly can just to understand how I can pastor people better, but also for my own journey, some of the trauma I've experienced. And I found something fascinating. Research shows through brain scans that people that have experienced trauma, when they're having a traumatic flashback, the part of your brain that tells you dates and time, that tells you today is today, begins to shut down. And the part of your brain that remembers the feeling, the pain, the horror of that trauma begins to be inflamed. And that's why a war veteran, if they're hearing fireworks, can feel like they're right back in the battle zone, even though just moments ago they knew where they were at. Because the part of their brain that tells them, no, you are in 2020, you are in New York, shuts down, and they're all of a sudden transported to a battlefield. Trauma is an amazing experience that you and I would do well to understand. And why I go there, because as I've studied it, I've realized you and I were created by God, never with sin in his mind. Our our design as human beings never factored in that sin would be part of who we are. Sin is a traumatic, invasive experience, 
in your life and mine. You and I were never intended or created to have to manage through trauma or through the trauma of sin, experiencing something that was never part of who we were originally designed to be. It's a foreign invasive experience that seeks to lock us into a past that Jesus has freed us from. And what do we do if we're locked in the trauma of sin? where you're in the cycle of this disobedience, this glory seeking that keeps you bent away from God. If you're listening to this and you resonate, perhaps you know the pain and ache of being in a cycle of disobedience, where your heart yearns to obey Jesus, but you can't break free the addiction. You keep going back to the mud, and this time will be different, and this time you're gonna break free, and yet to only find yourself in the cycle again and again. What is the hope that Jesus gives us for us who want to obey? Verse 55, he says this. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Jesus reveals to us the exit out of the trauma of sin, the exit out of the bent on our hearts to seek our own glory and to not pursue the glory of Jesus, the thing that causes us to mistake who Jesus is and not see him as he truly is, Jesus shows us that the way out of this cycle of disobedience is to know him. As we grow in our intimacy with God, that begins to heal us and set us free from the trauma of sin. It's only as we are intimate with God can we actually grow in obedience. What I've seen in my life, and perhaps you can resonate, is that obedience is driven by intimacy. I found that the more time I just spend with my kids, playing, hanging out, talking with them, being interested in what they're interested in, they obey me quicker because they trust me. They don't see my authority as a threat. Whenever there's intimacy, it's easier to follow. The heart is softened and we respond to the voice of authority. Obedience is linked to intimacy. And here's what what disobedience reveals. Disobedience reveals a break in intimacy. When you and I are disobedient toward God, it reveals that we are no longer in active intimacy with God. The reason why these Jewish leaders couldn't obey Jesus is because they were not intimate with him. They did not want to know him as he really was. They didn't cultivate that personal intimate knowledge. See, you and I have to come to the place where the greater regret and disobedience is not what we've done, but that it represents that we've become a person that's being formed by disobedience and being formed by a lack of intimacy with God. When you and I are disobedient, the lack of intimacy with God is forming us, it's shaping us, it's impacting our hearts. That should be the thing that makes us repent and regret because we realize I'm presently living outside of intimacy with God. See, when we come to know God, it not only leads us to obey him, but it begins the journey 
of healing us from the trauma of sin. See, to know God, to be intimate with him leads to obedience. But when we lack intimacy with him, that's when legalism begins to creep in. See, legalism is an attempt to obey God apart from intimacy with God because we begin to obey him based on the rules of others rather than the driving of his intimate voice in our hearts. When we sever intimacy with God, obedience becomes impossible. We become stagnant. And it leads us to obeying man-made rules. But here's where Jesus takes it home and says words that were quite stunning for this first audience, but for us are quite healing. In these words, he reveals his true identity when he says this in verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. What a way that Jesus describes himself in a way that no one else can describe themselves in this manner to say, I am. To reveal himself with such a self-sufficient identity. Ancient philosophers would call God the unmoved mover, the one who's at the beginning of all things. At this moment, Jesus is telling us something that you and I should pay attention to as often we are the victims of mistaken identity. What I realize when I look at this passage is that like Jesus, we often don't understand who we are. The way they didn't know who he was, we're more often the victims of our own mistaken identity. We don't know who we are. We struggle to identify who we are. We let society and culture, our past, the things that have been done to us, the things we have or don't have, tell us who we are. And we suffer from mistaken identity. People fail to rightly see us as we are. Perhaps you've experienced that. Someone who, does, who only sees you the way they knew you 10 years ago and they fail to see that you've grown, that you've matured. Or someone who only sees you through the prism of your failings and past struggles. Jesus was judged and misjudged and they didn't understand who he really was like you and I. But when he says, I am, to clear up all the noise, to eliminate all the fog, to say, this is who you're talking to. Before Abraham was, I am. You're talking to the eternal God, the one who created you and everything, I am. You're not talking to just a religious philosopher or some moral example, you're talking to the great I am. When he uttered those words, he simultaneously uttered the words that set you and I free from our own mistaken identity. Because here's what I want to leave with you as we close. It's impossible for you to understand who you are until you've settled in your heart who he is. 
until you've come to terms with him being the unmoved mover, the great I am, the Lord of our life, not the consultant, until you've come to terms that the seeking of your own glory leads you toward disobedience, but only intimacy with him can grow your obedience, that you come to a place of bowing and surrendering to the great I am, then and only then can you find out who you are. And can I tell you, at that moment of recognition in my own journey is when I found the greatest source of liberation. When I, when I came to understand that I was not my past, I was not the words that were spoken over me, I was not the rejection that tried to shape me, the people that left my life or, or abused and mistreated me, those things no longer were the dominant voice in saying who I was. When I came to realize who he is, then liberty came into my soul to know this is who I am. I'm loved. I'm accepted by God in his son. I have a firm foundation in Jesus that's unshakable. That whether I'm good or bad, whether I'm struggling or really in a great place, his love doesn't change. I want to invite you as I close in prayer for you to come with your heart to God. And would you ask him to clear up any sense of mistaken identity that you have toward him? Would you bow your head? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would cleanse the lens through which we see you that's often tainted by wounds and pain. The lens that we see you that is tainted by our own pursuit of personal glory. Lord, we repent of the ways we dishonor you because we're committed to our own glory. We repent of the ways we see you as a consultant rather than as Lord. And God, our prayer today is that we would know you, that we would be intimate with you and from that intimacy, obedience would be born in our hearts. Jesus, would you heal us from the trauma of sin, that invasive experience that was never part of our design, that keeps us stuck in these patterns of dishonor to you. Would you rescue us, Jesus, as only you can? And Lord, would you firm in our identity the rock that is your identity, would we know you as I am, that we might know who we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.